TGIM Team RE. This is episode 293. Stick around, do the work. It's worth it for you. And one day you're just going to wake up and it's going to hit you that you've got this nice little life now. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Rob. Rob took his last drink on June 5th, 2019. He is from Colorado and he is 55 years old. I know Rob from Cafe RE and seeing how he seizes the day now that he's left alcohol behind is so inspiring. He often posts pictures of his weekend adventures on his motorcycle or outside exploring nature and hiking. Of course, it's only fitting that I'm recording this intro from Utah. I drove from San Diego to Hurricane and spent the weekend exploring Zion. I'm headed back home today, but I just wanted to give a special thank you and a special shout out to Rob for always inspiring me to get outside. And hey guys, don't forget that on the homepage of Recovery Elevator, there are free guided meditations to help you get grounded and find inner calm. Just head on over to our website, recoveryelevator.com, enter your email address in the pop-up box, and you'll instantly get three free guided meditations created by Paul. Meditation is a very valuable tool, and with everything going on in the world right now, it's important that we continue to ground ourselves. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. We often hear people say that when they choose to quit drinking, they have to rediscover what their hobbies and likes are. Sometimes, so much time, energy, and headspace was focused on the drinking that removing the alcohol allows us to find gaps. Gaps in time, gaps in routine, grabs in headspace. And the whole point of us talking about recovery and this journey is to allow people to see that when we say no to alcohol, we're actually saying yes to a better life. Yes, Pablo, I stole your line there. Sorry, it's a good one. The doors open up when you put the bottle down. Some people pick up on old hobbies that they had forgotten how much they actually loved, while others go off to do things they thought they'd never do. I've always loved looking at this journey as an experiment, a chance to try new things, to get to know myself better, to be childlike and playful again. My point here is, sometimes we don't even know what we like or what we wanna do when we stop drinking. So give yourself some grace and also, Just go for it. Try something new. Believe that the possibilities are endless because they are. Okay, I'm getting to my point here. I was thinking this weekend as I was out hiking surrounded by majestic red rocks that outside of finding our likes and dislikes, we also must ask ourselves another question. Is what we are doing and how we are spending our time after we quit drinking bringing us peace? Think about this in simple terms. Think about coffee. I love coffee. I love having it be a part of my morning routine, but I also know that if I have one too many cups, it takes away my peace. I get anxious, restless, and uncomfortable in my body. So I've had to set boundaries around something that I really like. Only you are in your body, in your soul, and in your mind. So it is your responsibility to protect your peace. I'm taking this a step further. Not only is it our responsibility to protect our peace, but it is also our responsibility to make room for it and to pursue this peace. 
I don't know about you guys, but I want to live my days with a smile on my face and internal peace. With this journey comes honesty. And when we are ready to do so, it's important to analyze not only what we like and what we don't like, but we need to go deeper and see how each one of those things ranks in our internal peace scale. We may have people in our lives that we really enjoy being around, but at some point our peace is hindered. We may have places we love that are now triggering to visit. So now they rob us our peace. For many of us, we used to like alcohol. I mean, I used to love IPAs. But pursuing the pints provided us with zero mental peace, right? So make note of these things and keep working on your boundaries. I know I sound like a broken record with the boundary thing, but if you missed my episode on boundaries, go to episode 284. I think it's one worth listening to. All right. Eso es todo. That's my weekly dose of rambles on this RE episode. And before we hear from Rob, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. And another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code opportunity to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Rob, welcome. How are you? Doing really good, Odette. This is going to be fun. This is going to be really fun. I know we messaged early morning. I've been looking forward to this all day. So thank you for meeting me. Thank you. All right. And let's get right to it, Rob. When was the last time you had a drink? June 5th, 2019. So last summer. Just hit a year recently. Yay. Yay. Did you do anything to celebrate? Nothing specifically. We had some other events that I'll talk about that we did. I hit a bucket list. But nothing really big, but it was it was a big day for me. I'm I'm excited. Ah, oh, yes, I was excited with you because listeners, just to give you a little background, I know Rob through Cafe RE since we are both members of the community. So I'm just I've been having a lot of fun seeing everything that Rob is up to and I can't wait for you to share. And Rob, can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? I am 55. I live in Littleton, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. Been here forever. Uh, Married to a wonderful wife named Bridget. We just celebrated 30 years together. And we've got two boys. Both of them are grown up and uh, we're empty nesters. They're both out doing their thing. They are happy and um, not living in my basement, which is cool. (laughs) 
although we wouldn't mind having him here. I like to do um, adventure sports. Uh, I've always been kind of a little bit crazy, and probably my biggest one is motorcycling. I used to dirt bike, but I'm getting too old for that, so I, I adventure bike, uh, which is where you load up your camping gear, your backpacking gear, tent, and everything on this big dirt bike uh, that can go down the highway, and we, we rumble around in the mountains in camp, have fun. I have a buddy. And then we also do long distance riding. We have big sofas that have engines under them that we do a huge big ride. So I'm huge into that. And then anything mountains, anything hiking, getting back into uh, doing some of the big stuff, um, but just love Colorado, love the outdoors. Yeah, you basically have your own playground, which is really nice. And I, someone told me you have had a lot of motorcycles in your lifetime is that right Odette I just bought number 34 oh my goodness I know I know and you know the joke is how many more do you need just one more (laughs) just one more I'm sure Bridget just rolls her eyes every time you come home with a new one but she probably loves it it's your collection yeah she's a she's a saint sometimes she'll actually say you need to go riding. You're starting to get cranky. So she she kind of knows that that's my outlet, my zen. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah. And give listeners some background on your history with drinking, Rob. When did you start? When did you realize alcohol was no longer serving you or your goals? Just tell us a little bit about your story. So my first drinks were kind of just boys being boys. I have an uncle who's my age. And we would spend summers together, and we would raid for, uh, uncles and grandpa's refrigerator. Uh, but that really wasn't anything big. It really became a, a big part of my life when we moved from rural northern Indiana in 1979, 78. We moved to from Indiana to Denver, and oh boy, I was kind of this isolated, weird kid, part of a very religious sect. My dad had just finished seminary and got his first pastorate. So he was, I'm a pastor's kid. And we moved here and we moved in our city. Um, I don't think my parents quite knew what they were getting into. And I went from being this uh, rural farm kid type guy to minority at uh, a school where I was different and I looked different. My haircut was different. My jeans were different. And people, it, it was just a crazy deal. I, I quickly made some friends with some guys that didn't want to beat me up and started quickly drinking. Scott's dad worked at Coors. Coors is here in Denver in Golden. And so we he didn't keep inventory. So that that's what started it all. And it was more of my desire to fit in than it really was that I liked the drinking. And then it turned out the drinking was actually pretty cool. It was just part of the whole fitting in and feeling like I wasn't uh, just an awkward, weird kid. And then it kind of progressed from there. I got a job and worked at a warehouse that was actually owned by the mafia here. I, we didn't know it at the time. But wow. Yeah. And they drank heavily. Um, they would they would put beer in the fridge on, on the, in the beer in the Pepsi machine on Fridays. And I was known to raid it when nobody was looking. So that kind of ramped up. I started hanging with them and they were older. They were really old. They were probably in their late 20s, 30s, because I was about 15 at this point. They thought it was funny to corrupt the pre- the preacher's kid. They had me mixing. By the time it was 
done. They, I was barkeep, so they taught me how to mix everything. I mean, I was I was in it, and that all came to a grinding halt. My parents found out, and then put a kibosh to that, put me into parochial school, and I had to quit. But that just moved me into uh, figure out how to hide it and create another version of myself, right? The one that they get and the one that I get when I want to have fun. So it really didn't stop. I was in into extreme sports. Being in Colorado, it didn't take me long to start hiking 14ers and rock climbing. Of course, I got a motorcycle at age 16. My friends were all adrenaline junkies, and it just seemed like part of that culture was um, a lot of play hard, party hard. And I was that guy. Meanwhile, going to church five times a week, getting drugged to church. Shouldn't say that, drugged to church, but yeah, I was I was going to church. So I, I had a real, I had a dual life. And that, that kind of stayed that way. Met my wife rock climbing. We got married in 90, had kids. We, we played hard for five years, traveled and Disney and climbing. Um, we actually climbed Devil's Tower as part of our uh, fun stuff that we did. Had kids in 95. We started. Our first boy was born and really just kind of got into the routine of covering my tracks, right? Uh, figuring out how to hide it. I learned really good that first time and never really had a, a real bad bottom, meaning a DUI or job loss or anything like that. And this kind of rolled on where I became, a, I brewed beer. Uh, I became part of the beer culture here in Denver. So they would invite me to beer tapping parties, you know, at the big breweries. And that kind of was part of my identity as well, was a beer connoisseur, um, which is kind of an oxymoron. I was just basically drinking a lot of beer for free. And nothing... I wasn't really drinking at home. I, I could get single malt scotch and have a special bottle of scotch sit in the in the closet for, you know, two years. And it would only be special occasions. And then everything got flipped on its head in 2012. 11-11 of 2012. Sorry. I'm, so it's hard for me to talk about this. Take your time. My, my climbing buddy and the guy that taught me... Uh, how to brew and climb, and he was my best buddy. My my boy's surrogate uncle, um, his name was Ted. He got gut cancer, and it took him down hard. And on 11-11 of 2012, I, I had to, he had asked me to do the hard decision to um, sign the paperwork to um, pull the plug. And on that day, that's that's when everything went bad, and I had to do that to my best friend. Uh, that changed everything. I didn't know how to deal with things coming into that, and I sure the heck didn't after that. And that's when I started bringing home the booze. I would just buy the cheap bottled stuff and drink, do the beer, do everything else I was doing. But then I started drinking at home. This was in 12, somewhere around... 14, best I can think. I started thinking I had a problem. Bridget started uh, getting mad at me and talking to me. And this went on and just got worse and worse and worse. I, by the end, I was blacking out three to five nights a week down on the couch and just barely functioning. Gained 40 pounds. I was a mess. On June 5th, nothing really huge uh, on that date other than that's when I did quit. I went out after dinner and hit 
the bar, the the microbrew, and when I came back, she met me at the at the curb with the breathalyzer, and got me. I have a job that's got a security clearance, so a DUI is the kiss of death. That's mm-hmm. that's my income um, gone. Um, so she she'd had it at that point. She left. She had she had her bags pre-packed because she knew it was going to happen. So that was uh, that was the start. And that that leads up to my last drink on June fifth. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for sharing, and I'm sorry for your loss. That had to be a very difficult moment and change the trajectory of your life from what you're sharing with us. And I do have a question from before that happened. You were mentioning how you liked that party life and how you were surrounded by a lot of people who were chasing adrenaline rushes and just partiers and you were a part of that group. Was that always, was everyone else around you also drinking? Did you ever think when you were younger I think I have a drinking problem or was it just part of this bigger bucket of like, we're just enjoying life and living big, basically. Work hard, play hard. I had no clue at that. Not even a thought. If somebody would have brought it up, I would have, I would have written them off. I would have said, no, I got this because I was functioning. And then after your friend's passing that you noticed that there was a ramp up in your drinking were you at that moment conscious of the fact that you were trying to ease the pain? When did you start having thoughts about, I'm actually using alcohol to to numb or to stop feeling? That didn't come until I was in recovery. Wow. And, and pretty far into recovery. Um, I'm pretty dense. I, I couldn't put two and two together. I didn't have the tools. I'd never really worked on myself. I'd really never been in counseling other than marriage counseling. So I was clueless. Well, especially since you mentioned too, that since you were younger, you had to learn how to navigate almost like being a different person, depending who you were surrounded by, right? So being able to kind of shift into these different roles, probably a part of you thought that was normal because that's what you had been doing since you were young. Uh, Very much so. And I've probably got some more work to do on that. You know, parents do the best they can. We certainly try to do the best we could with our guys, but I'm sure I'll have conversation with my boys because, you know, we just mess up. You do. You only know what you know. There's so. uh, there's no playbook <laughs> for parenting. You know that I'm a parent, too. And um, yeah. I, I'm just I find so- solace thinking that we're trying our best and we are living in the solution right now. So. Yeah, it's all we got. And I'm I applaud you because you're a great role model to them. And we all make mistakes. So tell me, Rob, what happened afterwards? Your wife left. You hit your I would just call that an emotional bottom, if we can call it that. And what happened afterwards? Tell me about it seems like that's when it got really hard. It was a wake up call. Yeah, well, I was I was buzzed, you know, right when she pulled out. So I stayed up till about two in the morning. I still had to go to work the next day, but I got enough clarity and enough of the stuff metabolized that I had to make a decision. Is, is it the drinking or is it Bridget? I, I had to actually make that decision and it was a conscious decision. And I, I do believe that fear-based motivation is good. Lighten the, you know what, under our, you know what, mm-hmm. it's as moving. Uh, we can't live in fear, but I've I've since thanked her 
uh, for doing that, because who knows what would have happened? DUI accident, you know, I mean, the, the, it, it would have been a mess. And it took it took that, unfortunately. And I've, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I let that go at that point, 29 years into our marriage. So she left and that was the beginning of your sober journey, even though you decided to choose your marriage and to fight. She's she didn't come home. Right. Were you guys separated for a while after that? For uh, it was a couple weeks. Yeah, it was a couple weeks. I knew where she was at. She was at her friend's house. But yeah. So I was kind of left to myself. Yeah. Um, And the first weeks of being sober, too. So that had to be rough. Oh, I was wanting to, you know, don't tell me how to live my life, <laughs> you yeah. know, but I knew that she was serious and she's pretty mellow. If you met her, she's very forgiving. And I knew, you know, when you, when you get to that point with somebody like Bridget, you know, you just know that, uh, she's, this is not, we're not playing here. So that, that very first day on, on the drive to work, instead of listening to a book, because I was used to listening to Audible um, and some podcasts on motorcycling. I put in recovery, and it was really, it was that that next morning's drive to work that I discovered Recovery Elevator. So that that was the beginning of my journey. And that night, back up that night, well, not back up. I drove into work, I listened to RE, coming and going, and then that night I found an AA meeting. Having never been in one, they're hard to find uh, on the internet because it's anonymous. But I found one, showed up, and it made a huge, huge difference. I had never in my life been around a group of people who, after me saying who I was, and I I gave them who I was because I showed up just by showing up. I'm admitting I'm an alcoholic. Never been around somebody at that point, hadn't been around anybody that was that accepting and loving. Um, it chokes me up thinking about it. I, I had never experienced that in my life because everything was conditional based on making sure that you do what is socially acceptable and required. And alcoholic is not. So that, that group was integral. I didn't wind, I didn't wind up plugging into them. They're not my home group, a little bit different personality, but, um, I love them. They gave me a, a desire chip, pushed it around the room, mojoed it. And, and got it back and I got hugs. And it, this was all new to me. First night blew me away. But I think that was this, that was what I needed because I was still on the fence on this whole thing. Of course. And for many people attending that first meeting, although you sense this beautiful thing that you're describing, which is community and really non-judgmental individuals being there for you, it's still outside of comfort zone when it's your first time you don't know the structure of the meeting you know people are trying to give you their number and it's it's still it's it feels comforting but it's also like oh crap like when can i go home you know it's like this push pull yeah it was awkward to say the least but through it all those people loved on me of course. And it's so, to me, the beginning of recovery and these journeys are so, they, they so much remind me of being, being a kid again, because it's that like going into the playground and making new friends and maybe it's awkward, but you realize how much connection 
can happen more organically than than what we actually let it be when when like you're saying a lot of our grown-up interactions are more about like what do you do for a living what are your achievements and and I don't know it it's just kind of the way that we engage as adults and I do want to say that community in this journey is what's the true gift because you learn to have new authentic non-judgmental and very genuine relationships and that just honestly makes anybody feel good yeah and i was i was um trying to communicate this in a, a either yesterday or today in uh in cafe blue in our group and it's hard for me to put words to it but it's almost like one of our biggest or our biggest secret is out on the table with anybody in these communities. So we really don't want to fill up the time. Life's too short to fill it up with, you know, our golf, our golf game and or the last car, the last car we bought or what we do. We, we've kind of cut through all the BS and gone right to the core of our soul when we come into these relationships. Yeah, it's very unique. I love it. It's it's like we work our way backwards and maybe that's the way that it's supposed to be. So I'm really glad you got yourself to that meeting. Tell me about the resentment that you had, because a lot of the people correct me if I'm wrong. It's like like you said, sometimes choices need to be made out of fear and out of like an ultimatum and, and a shakeup. But when did when did you notice that started to shift to like, oh, maybe this is what I needed to do? When did you start reconciling those kind of resistant emotions to more of a, okay, I'm going to give this a shot? That's a great question. And it, it definitely was, it was a progression for me because this was the June 5th time frame, And I really didn't plug in or find a home uh, until September when I joined RE. I, I bounced around and did some things like uh, maybe seven, six or seven different AA meetings. Um, did a church-based one called Celebrate Recovery. Didn't click there. And read, 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 read. I read a whole bunch of Quitlet and then uh, binged on podcasts and everything. But when it came down to it, I really wasn't doing any work. It was just all aha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I feel that. I feel that I am, you know, I'm not this weird guy. But there really wasn't any work that was happening and there really wasn't any real connection till September when I joined RE. And you did recently go to, well, before COVID got crazy, but you did go to an RE in-person meetup, right? Yeah, I went to the camping meetup. How was that what? for you? <laughs> it was incredible because you, you get to know these people, right? In, in two dimension on, 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 the, on the Facebook private page. And you might even uh, you might even do a couple hikes and things with a few people here and there, um, but that was big. I met Paul, met Chris O, and so many so many cool people that I've I've become friends with and respect. I don't know. There's it's hard to put words to it. It's like I it's like I've known these people my whole life. You just give them a big hug with your mask on or whatever, thanks to COVID. But you. <laughs> It's like there's this real connection that I've not had in my life. I've had a few of them. My buddy Ted and I had a connection like this, but I, I can count on my, my right hand the amount of connections I had before I started this journey. It's real, and it, it is powerful. I don't know how to explain it 
I'm kind of rambling. I apologize. It's just, it's hard to explain. No, you're doing a great job. And it is, it is very special. And, and I do miss in-person meetups. I hope we can resume with our retreats and event plans because something really special does happen when we come together as a group, whether it's through RE or AA or just when you find those people in your life, they are worth spending in-person time with. So I'm really glad that you went. I saw the photos and I was like, yes, Rob made it. And I, I thought it was it was great that you went. So I'm glad that you have that experience. And tell me a little bit more about those first couple of months afterwards. You joined Cafe RE. Were things at home reconciling a little bit? Or tell me just about your maybe six-month mark to a year. How was that? At about six months, I had obviously done the brain chemistry work, um, neuroplasticity. I was avid reader. I was working on, I was just getting into meditation, trying to reconnect those, those broken synapses, trying to connect with my emotions and things were coming to the surface. I still wasn't working steps and I still didn't have a sponsor, but I was doing real work. And a lot of it was prompted through RE. And I'm also a member of Share Podcast, Omar. And I, I'm a part of a Tao community, even though I'm not labeled or practiced Taoism or Buddhism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I love it. I love the, the duality. So I've had all that exposure. And then on October 15th, um, I'm making this progress. A, a driver just, I don't know what his deal was ran a complete red light. It wasn't yellow red. It was it was red red and hit me doing 55 miles an hour. He T-boned me. Thank goodness I was in a big truck. I was in my Tacoma, but that took me down. That took me down. Uh, I couldn't work for two months and I suffered traumatic brain, brain injury. Brain injury. Yeah, their <laughs> brain injury. So I had to kind of start that brain healing from scratch and further complicate things I, I wasn't myself. I was on heavy medication that I had to be on that was mind altering. And it was pushing me back into those old days of escaping and numbing. And I didn't want it, but I had to because of the seizures and the strokes, I, I could die. I, I don't know if you know anybody with brain injuries, but TBI is not, it's nothing to laugh at. It's serious stuff. So I was thrown this huge curveball. But through the work with my sponsor and through this guy named Buddy, who's part of the Dow community, they were working step four on me before I even knew it. And, you know, I, I don't think I would have survived that because I couldn't drink because of the heavy medicine I was on. It literally could have killed me. No joke. And I don't know that I would have made it had I not been in recovery before that, because I don't know I could have stopped. So everything works together for a reason. And and my, my biggest lesson of my first big forgiveness and step four was forgiving the guy that hit me. Wow. I, I've never met him, but when I start getting flush and angry, I just pray for him. But all of this was part of the hard work I've done. And I don't mean that to pat myself on the back. It's work that I've done for myself that's actually a gift to myself. It's actually, it's actually selfishly, I'm selfishly working hard for me. And I'm sorry, I'm getting cracked up. But. You were preparing yourself for that moment, even though you didn't see that moment coming. And even though it was trauma and that had to be so hard, but you were ready to confront it. And that 
is not patting yourself on the back, Rob. That's that's great work. Yeah, and it you know we can't think in the past, we can't think in the future. And I had the support in the community and the tools and the meditation work to calm the brain because it, in the early days it's really dangerous, really dangerous if you're stressing and trying to think too much. I had to basically just sit around like a vegetable for for two months. So it it was truly my God that saved me. So I, and I thank Bridget because she started this whole, this whole thing, right? So again, it was fear-based to start motivation, but now it's turned into a love and to be a better human. Um, it's changed for me in these, in the, in the last six months and coming up into now. I, I attended a Dow meeting today. I do podcasts. I host podcasts. I'm just trying to do what I can to help other people reach out. I'm just reaching out saying, you know, it, stop fighting it. Drop the rock. You know, it's another one of the books, you know, it, it's so much better over here. It really is. It's a nice little life. It's a nice little life. And I, I know you spend a lot of your time reaching out and, and you're part of our community and part of this movement, but it's really nice to witness your journey too. I know recently you shared some photos of you and your wife doing a 14er, if I'm not mistaken. Was that, did yeah. you guys do that for your birthday or what was the occasion? That was our 30th wedding anniversary weekend. It was so nice knowing bits of your story and now a little more to see you guys literally climb the mountain and, and be together and just conquer that. And I love that you've been sharing those journeys with us too, because that had to feel really good. What, how long since the last time you guys had done that? Well, for her, because it's really not her thing, uh, it was when we got married. I took her on our honeymoon. We did three. And that was the last time she'd been up that high wow. hiking. But I, my last one, I took the boys 15 years ago. And the truth is I kind of let myself go. So when on June 5th, I was 40 pounds heavier than I am now. And you know, part of this recovery was physical as well as mental and spiritual. And so it wasn't just doing it to do it. It was doing it to prove that I, that if Dave, it took me a year to lose all that weight, you know, I'm nothing crazy and it's not the weight that's the issue, but it's just part of the journey. And it was, it was special and a spiritual thing as well as a, a physical thing for me. It, uh, it was a big highlight. Definitely, yeah, definitely mean, one of my bucket list items in sobriety. Yeah. The physical body has to heal, whether that looks like weight loss or weight gain or lots of sleep you know the body knows what it's doing and i'm i'm glad that you're taking that into a, account into part of your recovery because it's the mind the body the spirit and it seems like you've been benefiting from kind of sinking those back together do you still get cravings rob or do you get cravings oh yeah how do you handle that when that happens oh toolbox so the first thing I do is wait 20 minutes and that usually will fix it because they don't usually last more than 20 minutes. And then once that goes away, then I got to sit there and try to figure out what I'm afraid of. Part of my recovery training is learning the fear or the love path. And if I'm craving it, that means that I'm afraid of something. So I'll, I'll, I'll start scratching my head and journaling and I'll do some meditation to try to figure out what caused it. Sometimes I don't think we ever know 
it's just the stupid mind, you know, it's lying to us all the time. You know, all those random thoughts you really can't trust it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a, a bad deal. And then if that doesn't work, I page 84, my sponsor, that's just a little trick. Page 84 is um, for the, those that don't know, that's in the, in the big book, AA that is basically working the steps in your everyday life. So that's kind of me putting out a, a flare in the air. And I haven't had to do that, but twice. A lot of times I'll just post on RE or one of the other communities or I'll call somebody. But yeah, the cravings, they, they go, they don't go away. They just minimize. They're not as frequent and they're not as intense, right? And it's usually combined when I'm, I'm tired my, my mind just went blank. What's the four-letter acronym? Oh, HALT. HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. When I got one or multiple of those going, um, bull boy, yeah, you know, I kind of <laughs> create the problem, right? Especially lack of sleep. I was sitting around my wife's uh, on a little mini vacation with the girlfriends, and I don't have anybody keeping track of me, so I stayed up really late flipping TV, Netflix, and I woke up the next day out of it, and that was the last time I had a real craving because I was tired and, and probably lonely, too. So, I mean, it, it's a real deal. You know, if, if somebody tells you that your higher power is going to come in and just erase all of this and, it, and you're magically healed. <laughs> yeah. It's a choice. And, and you it's a choice. And you have to take your power back and, and take responsibility for knowing yourself. And like you said... I love that you said, usually when I get a craving, it's linked to a fear. And sometimes we get cravings that are out of the blue, like you mentioned. And I've learned that like, I don't have to be this know-it-all or get to the root of everything. Sometimes I know after 20, 30 minutes, oh, it's because this happened. But when they're out of the blue, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I don't have to know all the answers, which is, which is neat. Because I think a lot of us who have struggled with drinking, we're very like black and white thinkers and there's mm. this learning of like just imperfectness and impermanence and just not always knowing or being able to fix it but more just knowing yourself which sounds like you're doing a fantastic job doing yeah there was a great trick and tool early because those thoughts were a lot more frequent like about every 15 minutes i named my alter boozy go bobby you know i'm rob um robert by birth but bobby's kind of what I kind of picture that little bratty kid on the cartoon from Texas, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bobby Hill is like, yeah, Bobby starts saying, boy, you could sure use a drink. And, you know, part of the recovery tools, shut up, Bobby. <laughs> it's right. such a good tool. There's, there's like <laughs> two to three really simple ones that always work. And that one is great because we also detach, I think, a lot of the shame that we get or the guilt when we learn to separate and we know that we're not our thoughts and we are, we are good people. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad, I'm glad you tell Bobby to go shut up and take a walk when it's time mm -hmm. to tell Bobby to, to get right. out. <laughs> right. Do you ever get any pushback, Rob, from people when you discuss your choices around alcohol or like when you're at social gatherings and you say that you're not drinking? No, I thought I would. I was biting my nails off, burning the ships, that whole thing. Cause Paul and different people are always pushing us into that. And the first time, it was a year ago, July 4th, not this past, but in 19, we have a block party. We have good neighbors, and 
um, I would just bite my nails off. And I was just thinking about, I thought, I thought these, the world was going to come to an end. And I, I declined any beers and I had, a, I, I had a fizzy water in my hand. I did all the tricks. They don't care. Nobody they, cares. They, they, they don't care. They really don't care about me. I mean, why did I think the world would stop on its axis if I quit drinking? No, I haven't met anybody that really gave him a, a shit. Sorry. That's great. I think, no, you can, you can, you can say shit. <laughs> it's, it's one of those myths that is really neat to see people kind of bust through that myth. And, and you may get one or two responses. And usually it's because those people are probably looking into their own behaviors. But most of the time, either people don't care or they are good with us and our fizzy waters. So I'm glad you felt supported in that way. And Rob, looks like we've reached our rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabulous. Are you ready? I am. Perfect. What is a light bulb moment you've had during this journey, Rob? That first night at AA, I'm, I'm okay and I'm not alone. What would you say to your younger self if you could talk to day one Rob that day after that meeting? Ten deep breaths and Hi. then give yourself a big hug. You're okay. The breath is a powerful tool. What are you excited about right now, Rob? What else is on your bucket list? <laughs> I'm getting, in fact, I just picked up the tire, the front tire. My big sofa, my big rolling uh, motorcycle. Uh, my buddy and I are going to attempt what's called the butt burner gold, BBG. So that's 1,500 miles in 24 hours or less. We're going to attempt to ride from Denver to Seattle um, in a week and a half. We're going to take off. And then we're going to slow it way down and just like the movies, we're going to ride down the Pacific Coast Highway on motorcycles for five days. So, wow, I can't wait. Hence the name butt burner. Now I get it. <laughs> yep. I've already got my iron butt, which was a thousand miles. Oh my gosh. <laughs> do you get a medal or do you just get a sword? Yes, butt? you get a certificate, a patch, and then you get a license plate cover so that you can put your license plate inside of this thing so people can see it when you're riding around. Not that I do it for that, but it really is a badge of honor. There's not too many of us that want to do this or do it. That's cool. You're going to have to send me a photo when you get it. Okay, I will. Post it on Ari. And what parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Stick around. Do the work. It's worth it for you. And one day you're just going to wake up and it's going to hit you that you've got this nice little life now. Before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if lying. You might have to say goodbye to the booze. If you got kicked out of public school for drinking and your parents put you in a very strict parochial school, but you showed up to first hour Bible class drunk. Did they catch oh. you? No, that's a whole other story. <laughs> we hit it really well. We hit it in the windshield wiper reservoir of Brett's Ford Escort. Oh. He didn't use windshield wiper fluid. He, hold, he, he hit his booze in there. That is creative. Very creative. I would have never thought to hide booze there. <laughs> yeah, and you thought I would have thought I might have had a problem at that point, but I just thought that was boys being boys. That was living on the edge. Rob, thank you so much for joining <laughs> yeah. us on the podcast. I had a ton of fun chatting with you, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you, Odette. Take care, okay? 
Ciao. Ciao. Very well, team. That's a wrap. Thanks once again, Rob. I really enjoyed our chat. And before I say adios, I want to give you this week's challenge. Close your eyes for a few minutes and think about the things that bring you peace. Jot them down and keep them close. Try to incorporate one of these every single day. Maybe it's listening to a particular playlist or getting outside for a walk with your dog. Maybe it's sitting in silence with your coffee before checking your email. Get in the habit of looking for this peaceful feeling. Find it as much as you can. If you ask me, I think we spend way too much time detached from this peace and attached to other feelings like worry or overwhelm. It's a work in progress, but recognizing what it is that makes you feel at ease is a great start. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, protect your peace. I love you guys. <laughs>